Matthew Poole was a 17th century English nonconformist theologian educated at Emmanuel College, Cambridge. Poole is principally associated with the work Synopsis Criticorum Biblicorum, in which he summarizes the views of 150 biblical commentators, including Jewish sources and Roman Catholic commentators, an undertaking of 10 years and a monument not only of his extensive reading, but of his great acumen and learning. He also wrote English annotations on the Holy Bible, completing as far as Isaiah 58 before his death in 1679. Much of Poole's valuable contribution, however, being written in Latin, has been out of reach for many students of the Bible, including pastors and teachers. To remedy this problem, Dr. Stephen Dilday has been laboring to translate the works of Poole, publishing them in English. In today's podcast, Stephen Dilday talks about his Matthew Poole project, he tells us about the life of Poole and how we can obtain his recent publications of Poole's work in English. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm L. Michael Morales, your host. Stephen Dilday holds a B.A. in Religion and Philosophy from Campbell University, a Master of Arts in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and both a Master of Divinity and a Ph.D. in Puritan History and Literature from Whitfield Theological Seminary. He is also the translator of De Moore's Compendium of Christian Theology. Dilday is Assistant Professor of Religion at Southern Wesleyan University in Central South Carolina. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Stephen, let's begin with Matthew Poole. Tell us a little bit about Reverend Matthew Poole and his contribution. Matthew Poole was a, uh, a minister. He was ordained during, in the midst of the... English Civil War. So in your mind, you'd have to travel back to those, to those tumultuous days of the 1640s and 50s. Uh, in the midst of that, he was, he was training for uh, Presbyterian ministry. He was ordained by that, that presbytery in, in London, installed in a, in a small uh, parish where he, he labored uh, with diligence and faithfulness. However, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, and then the uh, passing of the Act of uh, 1662, he was one of the victims, I suppose, of the of the great ejection. The, the numbers vary, but he was ejected with either hundreds or thousands of other ministers that had been installed during the time of the Civil War. So having been ejected, he was able to turn his mind and his attention to uh, literary pursuits. He spent uh, the next 10 years of his life composing what is probably his magnum opus, his Synopsis Criticorum, which is basically a verse-by-verse history of interpretation. To say that it's five volumes hardly does it justice it's 75 pounds of commentary the old 20 inch tall five inch deep tomes double column small print i the, the general idea is if in the history of interpretation you had anything important to say about a particular verse he wanted to make sure uh that you got included he, he specializes in in uh, men of the Reformation era, it, and it really doesn't matter if um, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, 
but those men became a, a lens for him to view uh, the medieval men as they made contributions, the ancient church fathers, uh, Jewish interpreters, everything from um, the ancient to the medieval uh, rabbis. So I guess the long and the short of it is, if you had something important to say about the verse, whether he agreed or not, he wanted to make sure that he uh, included you in there. That's quite an undertaking. <laughs> yes. It was originally intended as a student's text. In order to read it, you would need you would need four languages. You would need uh, not only Latin, but uh, Greek, and not just the koine of the Bible, but classical as well. You would need uh, Hebrew, but not just the classical Hebrew of the Old Testament uh, scripture, but later rabbinical Hebrew, and Aramaic, biblical and medieval, unpointed <laughs> Aramaic. It's interesting. He thought students and candidates for the ministry would be able to read this. <laughs> just a slight downgrade along the way. <laughs> so when did you first discover Poole, and what drew you to his work? Yes, um, I, I have for years been aware I should say probably became aware of his English annotations 20 years ago. Um, what I did not know when I first picked up his English annotations is that he did not live to complete those. He, he died in the midst of Isaiah. So very much like Matthew Henry after him, uh, other ministers who believed in what he was trying to do tried to finish up uh, what he had started. So um, fast forward some years, I was at a I was at a Presbytery meeting with Dr. William Young. I had an opportunity to meet him and get to know him. Um, in the coming years, he would he'd even become something of a of a distant mentor. But uh, we were sitting at Presbytery and we were talking about a particular biblical text. Uh, he asked me if I had consulted Matthew Poole. And I said that I had, and then he said, uh, no, not the English annotations, the Latin synopsis, which immediately caught my attention. And uh, when I asked him about the synopsis, which I had not heard of at that point, he, he said that uh, basically it was a verse-by-verse -verse history of interpretation, and he wished that I would look into it. That, that dovetailed with um, something that I, I had picked up from Carl Truman, while I was at Westminster, I remember being in a class. It's funny the things that stick with you. As a teacher, you never know what your students are going to end up latching on to. But a, uh, a particular student had raised a, had raised a challenge to some part of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the proof text. And he had made the, made the assertion that the proof text... Uh, did not indeed demonstrate the doctrine. Dr. Truman at that point put the brakes on the conversation, and he gave us all a warning. He said, when we fail to see the connection between the doctrines and the proof texts, we shouldn't assume that the divines had no idea what they were doing. We ought to assume that we are ignorant of the history of interpretation. If he listens to this, I hope he's happy with that explanation. But it stuck with me, and I... It was really at that point that I became very interested, uh, not just in the interpretation of the Bible, but, but the history of its interpretation. 
And his his point was that uh, when the Westminster Assembly added the proof text, they were able to do it quickly and without much in the way of debate because these were long accepted commonplaces for the proof of these doctrines. So when uh, Dr. Young presented me with a easily accessible five-volume history of the interpretation of Scripture verse by verse, I was keenly interested and thousands of hours <laughs> working, working my way through it. Uh, now, I guess it, I started maybe about 10 years ago now. Uh, 10 years ago, is that when you started translating Poole's work? Yeah. And have you finished translating his magnum opus, or is there still work to be done on that? There's still a lot to be done. So um, the, original, the original scope of the, of the project in translating the synopsis was to um, try to bring it into manageable and pleasant-to-read volumes. So we thought maybe six-by-nine volumes, with not, not with minuscule text, with normal-sized print. But um, to, to render his work into volumes of that size and make the volumes anywhere between, say, four and 700 pages, would require 82 volumes. So I had finished uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which was, let's say, three, six, seven, uh, nine volumes, and uh, James through, uh, through Revelation, which was, let's see, uh, another six. So um, that's just some 5,000 pages of translated and annotated text, but still, I don't know, less than 20% of the whole project. Wow. Now for this interview, I received volume seven of the exegetical labors on the book of Numbers. And I should say for our listeners that I was impressed by the amount of work Stephen clearly put into these volumes. Hebrew and Greek words are printed in the original language, not transliterated. And Stephen has added his own helpful footnotes on nearly every page, explaining biblical terms and offering explanations of the people and sources noted by Poole. In terms of a commentary, Poole offers the major prevalent views on each passage as well as the commentators who hold each view. And he often goes further, bringing the passage within the context of the whole Bible, including the New Testament. So pastors and teachers will certainly find this a helpful resource. Now, given how much work you've put into this, Stephen, and what there is left to be done, you could potentially spend the rest of your life on this project. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to get uh, raise the funding for um, for full time support. I, I think if I could work on it full time, I could I could finish it in ten years. But wouldn't that be something? It took Pool ten years to write it. End up taking me, you know, twenty to translate it, but that would still be dependent upon being able to uh, devote some really serious attention. As you pointed out, um, I was very concerned as I got in as I got into the translation work, and I know that uh, I know myself, so I I can guess about other readers when um, when there are passing references to say scripture texts or words or grammatical concepts, if I'm not immediately familiar, um, if it's not super important to me at the moment, I might not take the time to go and, and look it up. Uh, so I wanted to make the volumes just as useful as possible by putting everything right there on the page so that readers that are as lazy as I am <laughs> have it <laughs> just right there 
they won't have to go any any place. So I, when there are references to to uh, uh, lex lexical terms or um, grammatical points, I do try to illustrate all of those in, in the footnotes. And of course, the it's a treasure trove of references to ancient history, uh, mythology, places. Now, anything that I didn't think would be common knowledge to the reader, I tried to I tried to annotate so that so it wouldn't just be meaningless there in the text, if you know what I mean. Stephen, can you explain for our listeners what your volumes on Poole's exegetical labors are all about? For the most part, they they are a translation of the synopsis, but uh, one of the things that that Poole says about his synopsis labors is that he doesn't express his own judgment. And for, for the most part, he pretty rigidly adheres to that. Every once in a while, in the way that he cites an interpreter, you can, you can tell that maybe that's not his favorite position or something like that. But, but for the most part, he doesn't tell you. His, his idea was he wanted to set the, the most important views side by side and he thought that the judicious reader would be able to determine which one was the correct view. And uh, no doubt for him, that's the way that it was. I'm a little slower, and I was frequently curious about his, his own view. So I took his later English annotations. So after he had finished the Latin synopsis, right at the end of his life, he started writing the English annotations for the common man. Uh, they are much briefer. They are not intended to be uh, scholarly, at least not by his by his standards. They're written for common people. Uh, but you do get his view and his most mature judgment on on the subject right before his right before his death. So I've um, I've spliced the the um, annotation material in there. Basically, as as Poole summarizes the commentators and leaves himself out, I've spliced him back in so that we can so that we can hear his voice uh, as he sorts through the material. One of my strategies for for studying it, I I frequently when I'm reading through sections myself, I will begin with his English annotations. And it frequently sheds quite a bit of light on the the mass of raw material that's provided by all of the different commentators that he's surveying. Spending all these years translating Matthew Poole, you obviously have become very intimate with his approach, his theology, even his life. Do you ever get an opportunity to teach on Reverend Matthew Poole? No. <laughs> Strangely enough, um, um before moving here to um, Central and, and taking the position at, at Southern Wesleyan, I was uh, 15 years in the ministry in Northern Virginia. And so um, not I would say comparatively rarely by name, but frequently I, his labors were making their way into my pulpit as I uh, would use the resources that he was providing for the study of uh, the text. But no, I, I've never, I've never had the opportunity to just sit and do a class or classes on, on pool. His work on numbers is just quite impressive, and it's a shame that he's not more well known. 
Yeah. Um, uh, Thomas Harley produced what is to date the most extensive biography on Poole, and it's it's very good and comprehends most of uh, most of the historical resources and really focusing on uh, Poole's uh, dialogue with Roman Catholic theology, which were probably next to his exegetical works, probably his two largest. And interestingly enough, those two works on um, Roman Catholic theology were produced during the 10 years that he was producing the synopsis. So he was, he was very prolific during that period. If I, if I put the sources together right, part of what might explain this is that um, uh, it appears that his, his wife died maybe two years into the project. And um, there's some evidence that there was one son, but um, from the general accounts of his, of his life, he lived a bachelor's life. He got up at four o'clock in the morning. He didn't even stop his work for breakfast or lunch, just as he, he would drink a raw egg for each. That sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> and then he would work all the way till five or six at night. And they said that he, generally speaking, in the evening hours, he liked to go and spend time with, with friends. There, the accounts are that he was he was of a very pleasant disposition. There was one account that said he would, uh, uh, at the end of the night, after having a tremendous amount of fun with his friends, he would then say, and now for a reckoning, bring up some sort of serious bit of Christian theology or practice. And then uh, uh, the saying was that he would then leave his friends in sobriety. <laughs> I think it was Spurgeon who said he was more of an exegete than a commentator. What does that mean, and do you agree with that? I'm not sure exactly what what Spurgeon might mean. I, I can give you my guess. Um, okay. I think he was comparing Poole with Matthew Henry, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And um, so uh, just before I forget, to understand his... His Poole's importance in the history of English interpretation. Matthew Henry is probably by far and away the most important and influential English Bible commentary. Um, and um, Matthew Poole was Matthew Henry's Matthew Henry, if you understand what I mean. He Matthew Matthew Poole's Latin and English work was was a favorite, was probably the favorite exegetical resource for uh, Philip Henry, Matthew's father, and then for Matthew Henry. You know, when you get to the to the American uh, scene, Jonathan Edwards uh, cites uh, Poole's synopsis uh, more frequently, I think, than all the other uh, resources combined when it comes to uh, Bible commentary. So um, Poole has had a has had a, tre- a tremendous impact. I think that there was a time when he was considered uh, a standard textbook while people still read Latin, and then um, once that passed, then then he began to uh, pass from the stage of history. But um, I think that the the great difference with Henry is that in in both in both works. Poole is more concerned to, to give um, 
the rudiments of you know, whatever things might inform exegesis, whether that's uh, lexicography, grammar and syntax, history. It's the raw components of, of doing exegetical work. Uh, but he does not endeavor uh, to do doctrinal derivation, especially not in the synopsis. There are times when his commentators are running headlong into theological disputations, and he will stop at a point and simply say, and at this point I would have the, the reader consult uh, the dogmatic works or the polemical works on this point. But he will simply stop hmm. once he thinks that the, the exegetical issues have been sufficiently addressed uh, and he is not um, in these works he's not intending to be a practical commentator the way that uh, the way that Henry is and I think that that's that's the great difference and why, why Spurgeon loved Henry so much Henry does go on to give uh, doctrinal hints and practical hints that are so fruitful for preachers but for the most part, um, if you're going to get doctrinal and practical hints from Poole, you're going to have to do it yourself for the most part. He's he, he's just trying to do the spade work of, of exegesis. That makes sense. Now, where can listeners go to find you on the web and keep up with your progress, maybe even support your work? Uh, MatthewPoole.net. Uh, er, everything is there, and... Uh, there are several components. As I, I'm working in Joshua right now, and as I as I complete sections of translation, I I blog it, so uh, listeners can go and sign up, and you can get a an email alert when, whenever a new portion is ready. And I, I try to so that uh, folks can use the the website, something like a a Bible study with fiber, I guess. I try to I try to get some portion up most every day. And then for some practical suggestions, I will usually in the comments uh, below include maybe some savory portions from Henry or Edwards or uh, some other practical theologian, something like that. Upon suggestion, I'm I'm producing a series of of small booklets with, with some of the very best and most interesting of the material. So um, the most recent uh, material was was on the uh, Trinitarianism of Genesis chapter 1 and uh, a very old exegetical discussion that has, for the most part, been lost to the contemporary church. But some of that old material that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is presented from the very first chapter and even from the very, very first verse, at least in its fundamentals, uh, laying the groundwork for for further development. So that one's just been finished, and I'm working on um, uh, the next one's going to be coming from from Genesis chapter nine. Uh, presents the the euhemerism of Samuel Bocart. Uh, Bocart was a Huguenot theologian. Also, once upon a time, when people still read Latin, a a standard reference when it came to uh, zoology. Hmm. What are these? What are these animals that make their appearance in the Bible, and how do we know? And uh, geography. He wrote a two-volume two work on the on the places that are mentioned uh, in the scriptures. But to to say that this is zoology and geography hardly does it 
does it justice just in the sheer volume of history that is presented uh, in these in these three volumes. Well, um, I was particularly interested in Bocart's euhemerism as as Poole presents it, the idea that basically that all all of the ancient mythologies of the oldest civilizations derive their historical root from uh, the extraordinary events that are presented in the Bible. So they they have a, a historical root. Uh, so I think the the argument for the for the Christian euhemerists was something along the lines of if Noah's flood happened and it did, and then the Tower of Babel happened and it did, the situation among the the mythologies of the ancient people is about what you would expect it to be. Hmm. Uh, the, the old the old history is preserved, but in a in a corrupted and confused form, and so. It's very interesting. Bocart, at least the, the section that, that Poole treats, takes up the relationship between uh, the biblical Noah and the Grecian Saturn. And he probably does some 40 to 50 points of linguistic and substantial comparison between the two narratives. And it, it really is quite compelling. <laughs> wow. you, can, you can start to see in some detail how, say, the the children of Japheth did preserve the history, but it had been somewhat confused linguistically uh, at Babel, and then substantially by the prompt, by the passage of time. It's very interesting. That is interesting. Well, before we let you go, Stephen, can you tell us about any other projects you're working on? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I remember going into the Westminster Library, and they had some of Machen's original uh, letters in a, in a little glass case and I was looking at them and a particular line caught my eye. He was exhorting another another professor to keep the students busy and he said, we must not let the ad lads be idle. <laughs> so Machen got me working all those years ago and I haven't stopped since. I've also been working on a uh, the translation of uh, a Dutch systematician by the name of Bernard de Moore. Bernard de Moore was a contemporary, say, of uh, Edwards in North America and, uh, say, John Gill in uh, the British Isles. These are all, these men are throwbacks to an older orthodoxy that has for the most part been eaten up and destroyed uh, by the rising tide of rationalism. Uh, which will find its its uh, noxious flower in the Enlightenment. But uh, De Moore wrote a seven-volume systematic theology trying to capture and preserve two centuries of uh, Protestant uh, thought before it before it was to pass out of the world, and uh, so. It also is quite quite an extensive thing, not nearly as large as the synopsis, but it's a seven volumes quarto, and um, I don't know, maybe maybe five of those volumes are more than a thousand pages, as he tries to uh, as he tries to gather up and preserve for a later generation reformed orthodoxy uh, at its best. It's it's super interesting in its dialogue with the 
the rise of what will become the, his, the historical critical methods in um, the Netherlands and England. Frequently, that's associated with with Germany, but you you don't find its roots there. Uh, you will find its its roots in rationalist thought in the Netherlands and in, in uh, the British Isles. Uh, so, so at any rate, uh, uh, very interesting, very important. Demore is impressive. Like Poole, he read everything in the world, and he continued to read and study as he would produce volumes. So, so each successive volumes at, volume adds to the preceding volumes. As he writes on his ecclesiology, he's still reading everything he can get his hands on, say about the doctrine of Scripture. So he will, at the end, have a, a list of things that he wants spliced back into his original text. So um, I've been trying to put all of the things back in their in their proper places, but try to. Um, th this is the last of the great Dutch systems, maybe with the exception of maybe a Bavink. The work by Voss has been published recently, which is just super interesting. Now, did De Moore also write in Latin, or are you translating from the Dutch? Um, he he writes he writes in Latin uh, only. Uh, so far, there I've had I don't know I've translated maybe maybe five hundred pages, and I've maybe had one Dutch paragraph in the whole. So it's it's mostly a Latin work. You've got your hands through the plow with lots of useful labor. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Friends, you've been listening to Stephen Dilday discuss his recent translations of the 17th century theologian Matthew Poole as part of the Matthew Poole Project. We thank you for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>